0: Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Good afternoon. Today is Thursday, April 29th, 2021. And welcome to the Muni Lowdown, the podcast produced by DebtWire Municipals. My name is Young Lim, your host for today, and we are continuing our series of guest speakers. And today we have Kil Ha from Pew. Kil, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me, Young. And we also have head of municipal research at DebtWire, the one and only Greg Clark. Greg, welcome back.
1: Good morning, gentlemen. All
0: right, nice to have you guys. Our focus today is on Pew's report on States revenue streams post pandemic. And let me give a brief bio of Kill. Kill leads Pew's work on fiscal and, and economic policy. And Kill also oversees Pew's work on family economic security. And before joining Pew, Kill was director of policy and consulting for Fannie Mae. And also, you've got a bunch of degrees. And at this point, I think I'm going to call you doctor because you have a doctorate in urban planning. Sounds good. Okay. Let's talk about your report and its uh, state revenue streams. Obviously, there's different ways they get their revenue. And with the pandemic, uh, Congress passed the American Rescue Plan, which was based on unemployment figures rather than dividing aid strictly by population to assist the states. In your report, you mentioned states with economies less tied to energy, tourism, and other hard-hit industries have held up better. And... Interesting, your report mentions that generally, revenue losses have not been as dire as feared at the pandemic's outset. And the only other time since at least 1980 that inflation adjusted general fund revenue declined three years in a row was around the Great Recession, according to the National Association of State Budget Officers. So my first question to you, uh, Kill, is the amount that was given to the state, do you think, based upon your report, since there's been good and bad what the state's had? Was it overall maybe a little generous or do you think it was like the right amount for the states?
2: Thanks for the question, Young. I I think it's important to take a step back and um, uh, hit the rewind button and go back to March of 2020. As the pandemic was spreading and shutting down schools, travel, businesses, and many individuals lost jobs, states did in fact experience significant uh, budget shortfalls and had to make significant cuts as well as use um, other reserves to sort of fill uh, the gap. Uh, State general fund revenue dipped uh, 1.4% from fiscal year 19 to 20 uh, and 32 states experienced uh, declines. Uh, And and again, this was the first decline in in over a decade. Um, Let's also remember that the Great Recession cast a fairly long shadow on state finances. Pew's research showed that states faced the lost decade following the 2008 recession. In 2019, you know, states finally felt that they were on sufficient ground or fiscal footing, rather, to propose spending increases to help fill some of the holes gouged by the Great Recession and propose things like pay raises for teachers, uh, increased investments in higher education, local aid, and hiring workers to provide key public services. So, you know, when you think of the situation that they were in, uh, they were just starting to, uh, um, you know, feel like they were getting back to pre Great Recession levels, and then all of a sudden, the pandemic pulled the rug out from under them. And the you know Pew's compilation of state forecasts show that nearly half of them, uh, going into the next fiscal year, um, expect general uh, fund revenue decline. So the uh, stimulus funds or ARPA, as they're called. Um, is going to really help states uh, to address some of those concerns. And again, um, you know, there's a lot of economic uncertainty still ahead, specifically the K-shaped recovery. Uh, you mentioned that energy states and tourism states were uh, particularly hard hit. You know, the recovery and how it how it ends up uh, shaping out is going to reflect the overall um, uh, budget performance of states. And, you know, for your listeners, I'd again remind you that, states have balanced budget requirements so they have to make ends meet so any shortfall previously um, is reflected um, uh, in in the form of budget cuts or use of rainy day funds or even tax increases and um, you know that's an important dynamic to remember and the arpa funds are going to be key uh, uh, as a as a as a tool for giving states breathing room to make uh, more strategic decisions for themselves in the long run
1: how specific if at all kill have the states been in saying how the extra dollars will be spent, or have none of them been specific? And this is going to be a multi-part question, I apologize. In Pew's research, did you get any overall sense of what the biggest needs of the states are and do the states have to account for these monies, or could the dollars go to a state's general fund, making it that much harder to track how the dollars are used?
2: The first part of that question, uh, Greg, is the. It, it, I think it's too soon to tell how the ARPA funds will be spent. Uh, the law gives states, as well as the District of Columbia, uh, 195 billion to spend on broadly defined purposes, such as fighting the pandemic and boosting the economy. Uh, that should give the states uh, a significant amount of of leeway. And um, you know what we're also seeing, you know, is in some states. Uh, such as Kentucky, Connecticut, West Virginia, and Wisconsin, they are putting forth bills that would let lawmakers control the aid that states receive from, uh, from ARPA, otherwise known as the American Rescue Plan. So you know, they are trying to um, make sure that there is a institutional framework in place that lets the states dictate how those monies are used. In terms of where we might see states making investments, of course, it's to address the immediate needs of the pandemic, but it's also instructive to think about, you know, what their priorities were before the pandemic hit, and when we look back, we saw that states had big plans for investments in infrastructure, which certainly, you know, ARPA. Uh, this fits with the the ARPA sort of guidelines: education, public safety, and emergency management. So those were the priorities for states um, uh, prior to the recession. I think the opportunity that states also have is that, you know, this is this is significant breathing room for states. They have. An opportunity to address structural issues such as paying down debt or addressing other long term liabilities. I think they're going to need to replenish some of their rainy day funds. And then also building back unemployment insurance uh, funding is going to be you know, pretty key for them. Because, you know, whereas they seem to be coming out of this downturn and recession, they're going to need to prepare for the, the next one.
1: There was one controversy I recall, uh, either as the bill is being drafted or Thereabouts about using the monies for pension funding was that prohibited in the bill? Do you remember?
2: Yeah. So the guidance is still being determined by the Treasury Department, but the two restrictions that we know are already in place, aside from the guidelines that I just spoke about uh, broadly uh, previously, are that no, none of these monies can be used for pension funding, or you know they can't be deposited into the pension um, accounts or they nor can they be used to um, decrease net revenues during the period of time in which ARPA funds are available. So those are the two restrictions that we know already in place. Uh, But Treasury uh, will be coming out with guidelines soon um, so that, you know, states can have uh, some guidance in terms of how to use this uh, money in upcoming budgets. But as budgets are being put together, um, time is ticking.
1: Uh, yeah I don't like to be cynical although it seems to come naturally to me uh, that's, that's part of what inspired my question as I think about it is about whether money's should go to the state's general fund because once it gets there the money's fungible and uh, but it's it's good the treasury um, is setting some guidelines so uh, hopefully it'll be a transparent process. Mm-hmm.
2: I think some of the money will go toward replacing funds already spent to deal with the coronavirus pandemic and its, its impacts, but certainly, um, you know, we want to see uh, as, as um, an entity that likes to track how effective the uses of, of, of fund, funds are being sort of used, uh, you know, some transparency and ability to track funds and, and hopefully even if monies are getting funneled through the general fund we'll have an ability to at least track some of that money uh going forward right thank
0: you kill you were sort of alluding to uh tourism you mentioned earlier and then that's obviously a, a huge source of revenue for states i think now with the vaccinations rolling out and so forth there's a big push by state to get the crowds back and I live in the new york city metropolitan area and i saw a commercial on tv that i've never seen before the south dakota governor was inviting people back to her state and i've never been to Mount rushmore and would love to go but it was i've that i've never seen one from that state and new york city recently launched a a 30 million dollar campaign to lure tourists back and today mayor de blasio announced that as of july 1st the city is wide open there's no capacity restrictions but We know that travel and leisure jobs were one of the hardest hit sectors from COVID-19. And I also have a two-part question, obviously, you know, I'm assuming that states will see a bounce back this summer with cabin fever rising. But the one caveat I have to mention is that many hospitality employers are struggling to find good work because the laid off workers are actually receiving more unemployment weekly payments than when they actually worked. And these unemployment aid goes through September after the summer is over. could this possibly derail that travel economic boom?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And for what it's worth, Young, I've seen those commercials too. I've also seen some states to begin, uh, begin to consider new ways to promote tourism, including um, offering vaccinations at airports. For example, starting on June 1st, any tourist traveling to Alaska will be able to receive a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine at um, one of uh, Alaska's four uh, main airports. It's part of a larger multi-million dollar uh, marketing campaign uh, by the uh, state, and it's being funded through stimulus funds uh, to to sort of attract tourists back. You know, I think the bottom line is that states and cities seem eager to welcome back tourists and add much needed revenue back into their coffers. But how robust and sustained the tourism, leisure, hospitality services sector will perform is going to depend, again, on the continued vaccine rollout, uh, public health guidance, you know, for example, Alaska and Florida are in lawsuits involving restrictions on cruises. Um, also, tourists from China and other countries are prohibited from traveling into the U.S. at the, at the moment. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, employees have to return so that they can meet that demand. Otherwise, there are going to be some capacity issues and, you know, maybe not the capacity to 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 welcome people back to, um, um, you know, visiting uh, other jurisdictions across the U.S. You know, one of the things that we are noting is that when the pandemic hit, uh, there were about roughly 4 million people that were laid off. And as of uh, January of this year, you know, 16% of the industry workers still remained unemployed. Uh, That's a lot of of people that are sitting on the sidelines at the moment. Um, and, And those are statistics that come directly from BLS. Uh, so certainly if the workers don't fill those openings, it, it's gonna have a negative impact on the sector overall. And you know, one of the other things that we're watching is some of those workers who were previously unemployed, they moved away from the uh, travel, uh, leisure, hospitality sector. They they moved into different sectors. And so how that plays out long-term is gonna have a direct impact in the ability of states and localities to promote tourism in their states. The, the one thing that I would just note you know getting back to alaska is that um you know even if tourism opens up you know alaska is one of the states that you know in effect has a double whammy they depend on tourism but they also depended uh heavily on oil revenues and that's you know um collapsed for them and and, and they're not really projected to recover um you know seven years ago oil revenues accounted for you know nine out of every ten dollars coming to the state's general fund and and today you know, uh those only generate a, a, about um, you know, uh, what is it? Four, a five out of uh, out of every ten dollars. And so oh no, I'm sorry, like two hundred two dollars and fifty cents out of every ten dollars. And so um, you know, that's a challenge for them long term. And 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 again, there are states in similar positions where um, you know, one sector thriving is 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 going to be really wonderful and an improvement, but they've got lar- larger sort of issues to, to tackle in the long run.
1: The uh, the only other thing I would add is that there's the imponderable when people are going to be ready to travel again, and if they have to get on a plane and you have to get on a plane to get to Alaska or Hawaii, well, I guess you don't have to, but ninety nine percent of the people who go to either place sure do. Uh, some people are still reluctant to get on planes. Uh, local travel um, that. Uh, do by by a car, via car, is I think probably likely to bounce back before um, all air travel does.
2: Yeah, absolutely, Greg. That's a terrific point, and and you know that's why I was emphasizing that um, the 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 travel um, industry is going to depend on continued vaccine rollouts as well as other public health measures um, that. Uh, state localities are taking. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's about instilling confidence in the ability to move around the country freely. And until that happens, um, we may not see as much take up um, in, in the travel, leisure and hospitality industry as we as we previously did.
1: Right. Anything else that could be a wild card to prevent states from starting in the black on July
2: 1st or thereabouts It's a great question. You know, much of what determines if states start out in the black in the next fiscal years is largely out of their hands. Uh, It depends on the economic recovery, which, you know, um, also has dimensions of improving, uh, improve public health and confidence and, 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 and things that we just recently discussed. So, you know, you know, for example, energy states, as I just mentioned with Alaska. They're among the worst hit, as, as Young mentioned earlier, and they'll still contend with the fallout from uh, coronavirus and, and, and lower oil and natural gas prices that predated the pandemic and depressed revenue in those states. I mean, you know, as I mentioned, Alaska was hard hit, but Wyoming was the had the sharpest loss of any state because of how uh, dependent they are on revenue from extraction of natural resources. But, you know, states can effectively manage through a downturn. But you know, using a bunch of um, uh, fiscal management measures, such as managing their, their expenses, um, you know, uh, deploying their rainy day funds temporarily, but how their budgets perform over the long run is going to be dependent on the performance of the economy. The one silver lining in all of this is that ARPA, the rescue plan, presents some uh, breathing room for states and opportunities to improve the bottom line. Uh, so you know there are a couple of things that they can do to improve their economic performance, but those uh, benefits are not necessarily not necessarily going to show up for a little while, such as investments in infrastructure and other investments that diversify their economy.
1: The theme of all your comments, if I may, if I may uh, say that, is I think that uh, the the recovery of, uh, of a given state is kind of unique to that state uh, there are some sectors in some areas of the company that have a lot in common but obviously the recovery is going to take a different uh, going to look different in Wyoming than it does in Connecticut for instance and uh, I think investors um, need to investors in balance need to look at uh, have to be sure that they're that they're looking at what's going on in a given state and not be misled by well, the, the headline was not intentionally misleading, but uh, in the Times today, there's an article about uh, GDP, GDP growing at an annual rate of, of 6.4%. So you tend to think everything's gonna be great, uh, but it may not be great in a, in a given state or locality.
2: Yeah, that's a terrific point, Greg. You know, when I mentioned that many uh, economists expect a K-shaped recovery, um, it's much as things played out during the pandemic where certain sectors were extremely hard hit, whereas others moved along uninterrupted and even thrived during the pandemic. And, and we're going to see that in uh, the recovery as well, where certain sectors will come back quickly and grow stronger, whereas others will continue to lag behind, as I just mentioned, the natural resources sector. and I think for your audience out there, it's really understanding where each state and their sort of economic base, you know, how how it's situated, where they are in terms of you know having the the right mixture of you know economic uh, assets, and how that will play out with a K-shaped recovery versus you know those industries where they might be heavily invested in, for example, not to pick on natural resource states, but even like you know states that are highly dependent on uh, the transportation sector, right? Though. Those those may not bounce back as quickly as they would like, and the you know macro GDP numbers can mask a lot of that.
1: Right. Uh, any particular thoughts about Texas and what been endured in the February storms there and that kind of thing?
2: It it was just a human um, as well as uh, economic travesty. I mean, you know, when the power went out in Texas, uh, you know, many families and individuals. Experienced a lot of suffering, and businesses couldn't operate effectively. And you know, I think there's a, there's still a full accounting of the expenses beyond the emergency costs that needs to be calculated. And so, it's not really clear how deeply impacted uh, the taxpayers of Texas were. But we are taking a step back and thinking about what are the lessons to learn there. And you know, one of the things that Texas had in its benefit is that uh, it, it had some robust rainy day funds. And had the resources and the tools to be able to respond uh, in a way that they might not have otherwise. So, you know, if there is something that was a, a bit of a bright spot, it was that, you know, Texas going into you know, the, the pandemic-driven recession, as well as experiencing the challenges of the power shortage, did have the resources available to try to intervene.
1: And, and I, uh, I noticed that the legislative session in Texas ends on May 31st, so we might be in for uh, a lot of activity there in the next month.
0: So, Kiel, let's, let's talk about the flip side. States that did well, the state of Washington projects solid revenue growth to continue into this fiscal year, and when they, when they combine it with increases last year, they expect to collect nearly 12% more than if collections had stayed at pre-pandemic fiscal levels. And the state's recent forecast cited a strong retail sales and a booming real estate market. So related to that, the Federal Reserve helped indirectly by making credit widely available at very low interest rates. And yesterday they met and they're continuing to keep, they've left the rates unchanged, which fueled us a huge stock market rally, which ultimately gave states, including New Jersey, where I live, capital gains to tax. And going back to Washington, they're proposing a 7% capital gains tax. So I'm assuming as the market goes up, Will the state's revenue follow?
2: It's a great question, Young. You know, in terms of how well the state of Washington uh, has fared during this uh, downturn, I think that it's fair to say that the Seattle metro area has been the primary driver of this growth. Its strength in technology, manufacturing, and as a research hub really contributed to uh, much of the growth and economic conditions across the state broadly. I mean, and you just mentioned the the, the approval or the proposed capital gains tax uh, that that Washington is considering. I saw that. Actually, as of a few days ago, the Washington state legislature approved it and Governor Inslee is expected to sign the legislation. And so once approved, Washington will be um, only the second state after New Hampshire without an income tax to tax capital gains. And so, you know, uh, as we look ahead um, and if the stock market continues to perform as is, You know, with employees, obviously, uh, in Amazon with, you know, a lot of their compensation tied up in equities and stocks, specifically in Amazon, it could be a a positive uh, revenue impact for the state. According to the state's own budget office, uh, the capital gains tax is um, estimated to impact about 7000 of the state's wealthiest taxpayers and generate about uh, half a, a billion dollars annually. So, yeah, as the stock market improves, states like New Jersey, Massachusetts and California's uh, in particular with the capital gains tax and progressive s- structures at that will certainly benefit.
1: The only other thing I would ask add there is that uh, it, it also benefits uh, state pension funding. Is, 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 is that, as I know, you know, Kil, uh, yeah. I forget what the we did a paper on, uh, on pension funding about a year ago and. Uh, Obviously, every state pension fund has uh, some some degree of equities in its in its uh, portfolio. So, uh, the better the equities market does, uh, the better state pension funds do. Yeah, that's
2: exactly right, Greg. And you know, the recent stock market performance has greatly helped um, state pension funding. But the thing I would caution is is we've been here before, uh, and and hopefully this time past is not prologue when it comes to State pension funds. Uh, in the 90s, when you look back, many uh, pension funds were at full funding and benefiting from the market performance then. And a lot of leaders decided to take a pension funding holiday and, and not contribute their um, actuarially determined payments. And as a result, the funding level started to erode gradually over time. And eventually they, they dug themselves into a hole that you know, for many were were extremely problematic. And I think going forward, well, hopefully we've we've learned the lesson of the last, you know, uh two, three decades and and realized that you can't just rely on market performance, even though that's the majority of where the pension sort of funding is coming from. You also have to be disciplined about making sure that you meet your annual payments as well as uh, managing expenses. That's a lesson that I hope you know, we as uh, folks who are interested in pension funds have learned over the last three decades, and, and a lesson that'll stick in the long run.
1: Yeah, I agree. Let's so hope people remember that. Uh, we won't mention the states that don't make their full contributions, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> we won't. We won't single. I won't single anyone out. Though you can if you like. No, neither will I. <laughs> Most, there are many states benefited from a 2018 Supreme Court decision that allowed them to force out of state retailers, retailers to collect sales tax on online purchases. And this helped the states when everyone shifted to online shopping. Missouri is one of the few states that doesn't impose the so-called Wayfair taxes named after the Wayfair, uh, Wayfair online store. And uh, Missouri leaders are now contemplating imposing the sales tax. Do you think all states will eventually tax online purchases?
2: Well, I think it's important to remember that during the pandemic and even before that, that revenue from online sales tax has been a key driver of, of revenue exceeding expectations. And during the pandemic, some of that was aided by the federal stimulus payments to individuals; they had more money to spend, and so as a result, you know, with the at-home Recommendations, um, uh, you know, where, where work sort of shifted to remote work, school shifted to, uh, virtual school, you know, people were doing a lot of their, uh, shopping online. And so that, that, that helped. I mean, you know, online sales is expected to start to slow in 2021. Um, you know, as the sort of brick and mortar offices, schools, shops open up again and people feel more comfortable interacting in their communities but this is a subsector where we'll still see continued growth uh, according to a recent article i read in the economist online sa- online retail sales are continue to expect it to expand its share of total retail sales so uh, right now it's about 10% or it was in 2019 and by uh, 2025 it's going to be you know more than 20% of all total retail sales you know states that don't tax online purchases are going to be missing out on a significant shift in consumer behavior, and um, you know I, the other dynamic that we'll see happen is that their uh, sales tax bases could narrow over time and more quickly as a result of this
1: shift. Yeah, personally, I, I think that they'll all do so to all tax online purposes eventually, because uh, as you said, the the money is just too good to pass up.
2: Yeah, and I think that. Uh, Real retailers also um, have uh, figured out how to do this very effectively, uh, regardless of uh, what state you um, live in. And so the infrastructure is there to make it happen. The technological infrastructure is there to make it happen.
0: Yeah, since we're all home, we're all shopping online and it has some interesting side effects. And Kill, I know you know, I appreciate your time. I just want to wrap it up with just a few more questions real quickly. Since we're talking about working from home and a lot of people are not commuting like myself, doesn't this impact states because a lot of them, because people were commuting and even not just commuters, you've got buses, except for the diesel, electric uh, vehicles, they run on gas. So what about the states that have lost a significant amount of, of lost gas tax?
2: Yeah, I, I, what we're watching closely is whether or not there will be a more permanent shift uh, to people working at home, and you know how that's going to impact gas tax revenues and more. As 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 you've alluded to, declining gas taxes and a reduction in toll revenues have left a lot of state tra- transportation departments facing yawning deficits. The ARPA funds uh, may help in the short term, but a more permanent reduction. You know, if this becomes like a secular trend in cars on the road will be challenging to coffers. But then even if cars on the road may not change and perhaps toll revenues uh, will will stay uh, constant, but certainly with the electrification of cars, you're going to see a deterioration in gas taxes over the long run. There are no real good statistics that you know uh, I've come across that really capture this at the fifty-state level in terms of the the, the the total impact. But I know that you know a couple of years ago, Governing Magazine estimated that for for the twenty-five largest cities, uh, you know they generated about five billion annually from like parking, traffic citations, uh, gas, towing, registration fees, and licensing fees. You know, so uh, you know things that related to uh, vehicle use and. Uh, the survey even found that like in New York City, they collected almost 1.2 billion alone and Chicago received almost, you know, 700 million um, uh, from, from those sources of revenue. So working from home can eliminate like, you know, a lot of that revenue, but it's also going to eliminate the need for parking in many cities. And this is going to significantly right. reduce, you know, related revenue. And then, you know, when you imagine... People working from home and businesses start businesses start to right size. You know that's going to have an impact on property tax revenues uh, as well as other sort of land use fees and things of that nature. And and that's something that we're also watching too. So the shift potentially from uh, to working from home is going to have a, a bigger impact than just on gas taxes.
0: Very well put. So last question. And I'm looking through all your degrees. I see a doctorate, but I don't see a law degree. But it's not really a law. It's not really. A... It's not really a law <laughs> question. But let me ask you about the recent action brought by the State of New Hampshire before the U.S. Supreme Court, which targets uh, the State of Massachusetts emer- emergency rule that allows collection of income tax for non-resident remote workers who are currently employed by a Massachusetts business during the pandemic. Now. This is not just within that region. I know several states have filed amicus briefs, basically supporting, and it impacts even me, New Jersey, because I live in New Jersey, but I work in New York. So do you think this could impact other states? And you know, is this something that could be a precedent?
2: Thanks for saying that I'm not a lawyer, so <laughs> it gives me a little bit of uh, wiggle room to say that I think we need to wait for the SCOTUS decision. But but there are things that we, we could be watching to see if one way or another, um, how the decision plays out. Um, uh, The how these like, what are the longer term trends that we need to sort of uh, think through? Um, I think it's hard to say uh, at the moment if the moves that we're seeing are meaningful and permanent. You know, a few factors I think need to play out, you know, the population shuffles that everyone talked about during COVID. You know, are they temporary or are they um, going to stick? Uh, some studies suggest that, you know, the mass migration that we've read about since the start of the pandemic may have been overblown, right? Despite despite talk of a permanent exodus, you know, fewer people were sort of moving um, out of state uh, above historic trends than the anecdotes suggest. You know, there was a lot of movement within the state, but I think that, you know, the the SCOTUS decision doesn't really impact, you know, those those moves from like maybe the city to the suburb or from a suburb to an excerpt in, in in a given state. Um, I think it might impact sort of local, uh, taxes, but from a state perspective, you know, that, that's not, that's a negligible impact for the most part. I think also longer term, long term consumer preferences are still playing out. You know, what, what families and individuals seek from where they work and where they live is continuing to evolve. And that's something that, We are closely watching. You know what? What do people want from their jobs, as well as you know um, their families? I mean, you know, we have some ideas uh, of what we think that is, but those are largely based on preferences that we've observed in the past and how those things get carried forward. We don't know. And then, you know, the question that we we touched on a little bit earlier is like, how sticky will remote work preferences be? You know, in my office, we are contemplating. Uh, some portion of, of, of telework, um, and, you know, we don't know um, what that's going to look like. You know, will, will we need all the office space uh, that we currently have? Will we downsize? I do think that Zoom and WebEx and Teams are going to be an important uh, feature of our everyday life, but how that shapes into, you know, where we live and how we engage uh, with our sort of built environment, you know, I think that those are things that we're watching. But I think you know, the bottom line for me here is that the pandemic has put a, a spotlight on migration population growth and the differences it can make for state and local governments. And, and, and you know, this has long been something that we on the policy side have watched, but I think that elected officials are now realizing that you know, this has you know, bigger implications for their, you know, um, their bottom lines, the, the economic growth opportunities that they have. As well as, you know, the expenses uh, that they might need to incur to support the population growth uh, in in, in certain places. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we need to wait for the uh, Supreme Court decision in terms of, you know, how the dynamic in New Hampshire and Massachusetts plays out and the impacts more broadly. But from the Pew's perspective, those are the we, we're, we're watching the trends that I just referenced above.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, uh, migration is is a huge thing with the pandemic; people moving. I mean, today I think it was on the news that the city of San Francisco is actually for the first time in a, in a quarter century they're forecasting a drop in their property tax base, and that's 25 years. So that's very interesting, right there.
2: Yeah, it is. And, and but you know, the question is: Are the people in San Francisco moving to? idaho or are they moving to the suburbs and and that's the that that's what we have to um, watch carefully and and whether or not those moves were were as i mentioned permanent or are temporary are they going to move back to san francisco once we start to open up again right. um you know the, i i think that metro areas and face-to-face contact are still going to be important but to what degree uh and that and that's the question that i'm asking myself I know others are asking and, you know, watching closely to figure out what the answer to that question is.
0: We'll all be waiting. But Dr. Kilha, thank you so much for your time today. <laughs> and Thanks so and, much, John and, um, and
2: Greg. Yeah, thank and, you.
0: And uh, I'm going to give an honorary doctorate to Mr. Greg Clark. Thank you for your time today, Dr. Clark.
2: He certainly <laughs> deserves one. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Don't Dr. Clark. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are too generous. Thank you. Yeah. All right. And that is our show for today. Many thanks to Kil Ha from Pew and Greg Clark, head of municipal research here at DebtWire. But again, always thanks to you, our listeners out there who tune in week after week for the latest on distressed muni debt on Mean Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals. Take care, everybody, and have a good day. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Mean Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.